right. Please remain standing for the reading of the Word of God. Again, from the book of Colossians, we are looking at chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. This is the Word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, these are such beautiful words. I love them. I have loved them since the first time I read them. They are majestic. They are true and they are powerful. But they are not powerful because of my preaching. They are powerful because of the spirit that is in them and the spirit that comes through the preaching of them. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray your spirit upon me to preach clearly and truthfully and passionately this truth. And I pray, Heavenly Father, your spirit upon the ears and the hearts of every one of us in this room, that your word would not be allowed to lodge anywhere but our heart, that you would pierce us, that you would draw us into this vision of great majesty that we would be enthralled with hearts of rapture for Jesus, that we would experience, as the great Puritan preacher said, the expulsive power of a new affection, that as we behold Christ as he is, Father, all other things would tarnish and diminish in comparison. Father, let the truth that Jesus is enough ring loud in these words today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we are in a series. Uh, We've called it Jesus is Enough. It is a series where we are going through The book of Colossians, I believe Jesus is enough, is the main point that Paul wants this young church in Colossae to understand because they are being pressured and tempted with many messages that Jesus is not enough. Or if you really want the spiritual life, or if you really want all of God's blessing, if you really want that next level religious experience, you need more. And Paul writes definitively, no, Jesus is enough. And the paragraph that we are paying attention to today is really 
You can call it many things. You can call it the boulder that sets the foundation for everything he says. It is the rock that every false theology will shatter when it is brought against. Or you can think of it like a grenade that Paul throws into a camp of fake and false and flimsy beliefs and lets it explode them all. If we really work through what is said in these verses, we will look nowhere else for what we need. Nor will we be overwhelmed by anything else. Because when we allow the Christ of these verses to overwhelm us, all things will seem small in comparison. This paragraph is what we call in theology Christology. Christology of the highest sense. Christology is the doctrine of Christ. And Paul lays out for us the doctrine of Christ in the most packed and soaring words uh, perhaps that you can find in Scripture. I think you could put it next to any of your favorite passages. It comes right after what, uh, what uh, Kyle took us through last week, which was Paul's prayer that we grow in Christ, that we grow in our knowledge of Christ, that we grow in our conformity to Christ, that we grow in our gratitude to Christ. And this paragraph is the big why and what, the knowledge of Christ that he wants you to be filled with, the map of Christ that he wants placed in your head is these verses. This week, we want to know him truly. And Paul sets this at the beginning of his letter to the Colossians because they were tempted to augment Christ. They had been preached Christ. They had been preached Christ truly. But time had gone on and other people had begun to present other ideas, other fascinating religious thoughts. And they said, well, let's just mash them together. That'll just make a bigger, better belief system. And Paul wants to show us that You can't add anything to Christ. Christ is complete. And I think the reason that we need to hear these words today, the reason that I believe Colossians is so relevant to us, is that we tend to live with a Jesus that is too small. We carry around in our hearts a Jesus that is quaint, a Jesus that is comfortable, a Jesus that is safe, a Jesus that is not challenging, a Jesus that is not sovereign, a Jesus that is a co-pilot to our self-determined lives. And the weakness of our Christian lives and the weakness of the church itself is manifest in the fact that we carry around a too small Jesus. This passage seeks to set that straight, to remove the smallness of the Jesus that we have have created and give us the true Jesus. When I was in fifth grade, I didn't have glasses. I was one of the cool kids still. I had no glasses on, ran into everything, but at least I didn't have glasses, and uh, and then it became obvious, because I, I, I did run into a tree, literally, just boom, that maybe I needed to have an eye appointment. 
And so I went to uh, an ophthalmologist, and they did all of the examinations of my eyes, and they finally put uh, corrective lenses in front of my eyes. And they had me stand in front of a window. And for the first time in my life, I saw leaves on trees. I thought trees were just green and brown pointy things. But when the lenses were put on my eyes, I was able to see sharply and crisply the world as it really is. This passage is a focusing passage. You see, I had been diagnosed with myopia, with nearsightedness. I could only see things very close. Things that were not very close were blurry and indistinct. And I believe that in a spiritual sense, we have a small Jesus because we have become nearsighted. We have become afflicted with the myopia of self-centeredness. And so Paul's passage here is a corrective to our vision. It is the spectacles that allows us to see clearly and crisply the true biblical Jesus And when we receive him in this passage, we will come away recognizing Jesus is enough because Jesus is supreme. Paul gives us six titles in this passage that reveal Christ's supremacy over all creation. This passage connects very intimately with the series that we started the year with in Genesis 1 through 3 called The Reason Why. Paul is going to show us that the reason why the world exists isn't just God, it is that Christ is God. That the reason why is also found in Christ. Because Christ and God are one and the same. The message of Jesus is far bigger then you can imagine when these six titles are allowed to press into your minds and to open your eyes. The purpose for today is simple. I want to fix the myopia of your self-centeredness by fixing your eyes on the supremacy of Christ. But for that purpose to be accomplished, it is not in the preaching It is in the taking what we preach today and keeping it before you. Because at 12.15, your phone is going to fill you with a bunch of self-centered options. And you will fade away into a blindness again if you do not resolve that I am going to fix my eyes on the fullness of Christ and all his supremacy. Let us now look at these six titles that reveal Christ's supremacy over all creation. First, he is God revealed. He is God revealed. Paul says he is the image of the invisible God right there at the beginning of verse 15. This is an amazing assertion. Paul is saying that Jesus the man who walked in Palestine in the first century, he is the image of the invisible God. Can you believe those words have been written down about a human being? 
And yet they have, not just here, but also in Hebrews 1.3, we are told, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Or the Apostle John in his introduction to his gospel says in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. When uh, the disciples were asking Jesus at at the Last Supper, just show us the Father, that's all we ask. Jesus looked at them and said, Do you not realize... That when you see me, you see the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This is the testimony of the New Testament authors all the way through. How can we know? How can we know that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? Well, I think one of the the, the ways that we can go about understanding this is to recognize that all of these statements have been made about Jesus after his crucifixion, which means that something happened after his crucifixion that so completely confirmed the nature of Jesus that it was absolutely obvious he is the image of the invisible God. Let's go to the the trial of Jesus in the book of Mark. In the 15th chapter, we read the very end of the trial in front of the Sanhedrin, these words, Mark 14, 61. He says, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Do you understand what happened at the trial. The high priest said, tell us who you really are. Are you the son of God? And he said, I am, which is the words for God in the Old Testament. And then he used two additional uh, uh, phrases in the Old Testament that are ascribed to God, coming on the clouds and seated at the right hand of power. He said, I am with God. I am God, this is a declaration of his identity. And what is the charge the Sanhedrin makes? This is a man calling himself God. This is blasphemy. And blasphemy is a supreme sin. If he is lying, then he deserved death, according to the Old Testament. And so with the charge of blasphemy, Jesus is put on the cross and Jesus is rejected and ridiculed. And if that was the end of the story, then the sentence 
He is a blasphemer would be the last word and the only word that would survive about Jesus. There is only one thing that could possibly overturn the verdict that he is a blasphemer justly condemned and crucified. And that is if he is the only one in all of history who had his sentence reversed by the court of heaven by resurrection. You see, when Jesus, Jesus was risen from the dead, God said, my son spoke the truth. He was not a blasphemer. He is my son. And I would contend with you only by the resurrection would the apostle Paul or any other writer of the New Testament take up the pen and say, you know who Jesus really is? He is the image of the invisible God. That statement and everything that we read is banked by the fact of the resurrection. Some of us, though, have a myopia here. We see Jesus as too small. These, these words, for whatever reason, they don't captivate us. They don't sit at the forefront of our mind. They don't amaze us. What has made Jesus so small? I believe his smallness in this respect often comes down to the self-centeredness of ignorance and the self-centeredness of apathy. Apathy. Been there. Heard that. What's the big deal? I've heard this since I was a kid. I know who Jesus is. I know Jesus is God incarnate. I know Jesus is the Son of God. Tell me something I don't know. Move me into some really juicy truth. How, how, how many times am I supposed to be amazed that Jesus is the Son of God? My friends, the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God is a truth of such great moment and size that the angels of heaven spend their time looking into this message with wonder. Where is our fascination? Why, why is it so hard to, to stir up the desire to know him and to know more of him? Why are so many of us choosing the path of Martha as opposed to Mary? How many of us are more concerned right now about what we have to get done? What's next week? What are our appointments? What's lunch? What's the list of this or that for my life? Well, I am preaching to you that the Son of God has taken on flesh. Been there. Heard that. My friends, if, if you want to be cured of your myopia, you have to take the spirit of Mary, who when Jesus visited her house, she did not busy herself with the chores and the mundane. She sat herself at his feet 
and just soaked in him. What is his otherworldly beauty? What is his perfection of character? What is the, the magnificence of his presence? That is what it means to absorb that he is God revealed. To look at him. To listen to him. To, to, to pour into the scriptures your imagination and say, I want to see more of you. That is the cure of your apathy. I mean, what do you think you can hope for if in this world you can barely care about the gospel between church services? Let yourself fix your eyes upon him as God revealed. Look at him. Listen to him. Christ is supreme. He is God revealed, but also Second, he is preeminent. Paul says he is the firstborn of all creation. Now that word firstborn has created some confusion for us because the word firstborn in our mind attaches itself to to birth and to, to a beginning in time. But that is not what is meant in the context. We recognize that Paul cannot mean that he is the firstborn and that he was born as part of the creation because it is appended to this next verse which says, he is the creator of all things, visible and invisible on heaven, in heaven and on earth. All things have been created by him. So Jesus is not being, we're not being told that Jesus is part of creation. The word firstborn is pointing to something else. And in the culture that Paul is writing in, the word firstborn carried the meaning primarily of rank. The firstborn is top, is preeminent. He is the one with priority. We see this usage in Psalm 89, 27, where God speaks of the Davidic king. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the king's of the earth. We have to recognize the way firstborn is being used. I imagine that if a first century person were plopped into our context and listened to some of our popular music and heard how we use the word baby, they'd be like, why do you love little kids so much? But you recognize that when we use the word baby in the, in the modern vernacular, we are talking about affection, about love, But when we talk about firstborn in the first century, we're not talking about birth order. We're talking about primacy, priority, preeminence. And that is what Paul wants us to see. Jesus is the beloved son. He is above all. He is the heir of all things. Everything that exists belongs to him. And yet, we struggle with a small Jesus. A Jesus that does not wrap our minds with the thought of his preeminence. Because we, many of us, struggle with the self-centeredness of arrogance. The self-centeredness of arrogance. What what, What do you mean? The word Jesus Christ has probably been heard more times this week 
by you in the context of blasphemy and profanity than in worship and reverence. And it probably has even been used by some of you in that way. How can we say Jesus Christ to our small little problems and really have in our minds that he is the firstborn over all creation? We would not use the, word, the, the, the names of our mothers the way we use Jesus Christ. Because we respect her position over us too much. And yet we carelessly will slur the name of Jesus when we stub our toe or we don't get our way. You can't do that without a small, puny Jesus in your heart. Others of us cannot accept that Jesus is the only way of salvation. We can't accept the narrowness that, that only Jesus can take us to heaven, that Jesus is, is the only Savior to this world. And so in our hearts, we carry around this secret proviso, he is a way. We, put, we take the word the out and we put the word a way in our hearts. There, there, there has to be other ways. I, I just can't affirm that he is the only way. And yet, if he is the firstborn of all creation, if he is the heir of all creation, there is no way to get to heaven but through him. He can be the only way by being the preeminent over all creation. As we are told in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so a small Jesus is, we make a Jesus small when we say he is one of many. The only way to make Jesus truly preeminent is to confess he is one and only. My friends, when we reverence him, when we when we truly come to him with awe and amazement, we will see his greatness. But coming to him as a term of profanity or as only a way, we will continue not to see him for who he is. Christ is supreme. He is preeminent. But also, third, we see he is creator. Paul goes on to say, for in him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Verse 16 echoes Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you see the astounding thing that Paul is saying here? He has rewritten Genesis 1.1 with Jesus the Christ as the subject. That's astounding. He is saying that appropriate interpretation of Genesis 1-1 would be to say, in the beginning, Christ created the heavens and the earth. Because the one that we confess is the creator. Verse 
There is no daylight in this statement between God's nature and the Son's. We cannot accept this statement without recognizing that true Christianity is Trinitarian. That there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each person fully and truly God. As is confessed in the Nicene Creed, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Which is to clarify that when we say he is the image of the invisible God, he is the God made visible. More in this recognition that he is the creator, we see that he is the reason why for all creation. It says, in him all things were created. Why do you exist? Why do you exist? Because of Christ. In him all things were created. He is the creator. Before we belong to him in his redemption, We belong to him as his creation. And yet, we struggle with making him small. Why? Because of the self-centeredness of entitlement. We are told that he is the creator of all things, and yet we spend most of our time thinking, I deserve to be here. We take much of life for granted. We complain about what we don't have. We like to imagine ourselves as self-made. I am who I am because of the work that I have done. And yet if we take this passage to heart, we are what we are because he created us. There's no remainder. It is him. And yet our heart of entitlement of wanting to be deserving and owning of something in this world chokes that out. So Paul gives us the remedy in 1 Corinthians 4.7. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? All of us would be blessed with taking a ledger of all the things that you have, all the things in your life, and writing above them, gift. Because when we don't recognize they are gifts, we don't give thanks for them. And yet all that we have was given to us as a gift. Because we're not the creator. He is the creator. Give thanks for your life and you will see his greatness at the expense of your entitlement. Christ is supreme. He is the creator. But also, number four, he is sovereign. 
We are told that, that um, uh, in him all things were created, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now that, that phrase piques our curiosity because as we dig into it, we recognize that these thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities are speaking of spiritual realities that if this verse hadn't been written, most of us would have no clue about. But we are being told by Paul that in the unseen world, in the invisible realm, in, the, in, in a spiritual domain, there are thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. So our curiosity is peak. I remember the first time I read through these verses uh, quite a bit younger, just wanting to spend time fascinated with, well, what does this mean? How, how does this work? Are these orders? Are these, are these ranks? Are these classes? Are these types? Nobody knows. All, all that we can discern from Paul is that these are different uh, names for different spiritual realities and spiritual beings. They include both beings of goodness and beings of evil and, and uh, malcontent. But we cannot take these verses and, and develop some sort of Hierarchy. All that we can do with these verses is recognize that, that Paul is revealing their existence. And so we have two counsels that I think uh, we in the 21st century of readers of Colossians need to take with this, this uh, information, this revelation. The first is we should not deny what is clearly revealed here. There are spiritual beings and spiritual realities that we do not know about and that we cannot see. We tend to have a naturalistic mindset where if we can't see it, if we can't touch it, if we can't feel it, we don't really believe in it. But we are told very clearly from the revelation that Paul was given that there are spiritual realities and they have been revealed to us for our good. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 tells us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we need to recognize that this has been given to us for our good, to recognize that the fight is not not visible, the fight is invisible, it is spiritual. But just as we should not deny, I think it is also important that we don't fixate, that we don't fixate on these spiritual powers. Paul is not revealing these spiritual powers to draw our interest and our attention and our devotion. He is giving us this information to allow us to know that there are no powers, seen or unseen, that are greater than Christ. Christ is above and supreme all powers, seen and unseen. In fact, all powers that exist are subservient to Christ because he created them. Now, most of us don't deal with fascination in, in uh, spiritual beings or spiritual powers, although if you come from a Catholic background, I think the, the veneration of the saints and Mary gets into this territory, and we should avoid it because it's fruitless, because we are told right here, Christ is enough to take us to the throne of God. But all the same, I think if we deal with more the spirit of our age, how do we end up making Christ small 
when we consider his sovereignty. I think that reveals itself in the self-centeredness of our self-reliance. Of our self-reliance. We simply struggle with a gospel that says everything is done. All is given. Everything is a gift. It's yours by faith alone plus nothing. You see, what the Colossians wanted to do was to believe that if they added some spiritual mediums or spiritual powers to the gospel, they ended up with a super-powered gospel. We want to believe that if I add good works, a good reputation, a good job, excellent integrity, that somehow I bolster my position. I, I do something that makes me pleasing before God. It is, it is a temptation for us to say, uh, I need Jesus, but the reason I'm saved is I'm a good person. It's always a startling thing to me that people bring up, I'm a good person, even after they explain the gospel, I'm a sinner saved by grace. You see, our self-reliance wants to carve out through something a portion that God, that Christ's sovereignty doesn't take care of because that gives us some place to be responsible and boast in ourselves, to be quite honest. But this is denied by this text. There are no powers, not even yourself, especially not yourself, that have any sway in the kingdom because Christ has done it all. Christ becomes small here when we attach to these spiritual powers or to our own self-reliance, a portion of our salvation, because by necessity, that requires us to increase in the portion of salvation at the expense of Christ. For our salvation to rest in us is to rob some portion of 100%, and Christ claims 100% of your salvation. As we see in Romans chapter 8, 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, Christ Jesus, who is at the right hand of the Father, is the one who died for our sins. He is the one that was raised for our justification. What else do we need? He has done the whole work. He has done everything. The only thing that falls upon us is to forsake our self-reliance and put our faith alone in Christ alone because Jesus is enough to get us all the way. He is sovereign, but also fifth. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Alpha and the Omega. We are told all things were created for him and that he is before all things. By this we see that he is the Alpha because he is before all things. He is preexistent. Before there was anything, Christ was. Christ had no beginning. Let that mystery bounce around in your head. There was never a time when Christ was. Was not. 
There was a time when there was no time, and this gets kind of mind-boggling, but there was always Christ. And he is also the Omega. We're told all things were created for him. Paul is saying that he is the purpose of all existence. He is the end for which we were created to give glory to Christ. And yet, even though he is the Alpha and the Omega, we deal with the myopia of making him small because we're filled with vanity. We marvel not at the Alpha and the Omega, at the, at the being part of his purpose, at living for his glory. We instead devote our lives to stuff, to making ourselves great and special. I was reminded this week that there's nothing that we collect that doesn't end up in a yard sale or a dump. And yet we spend all of our time making it about stuff and better stuff and newer stuff. When we are told that he is the alpha and the omega, the only thing that matters, the only thing that lasts is what we do for Christ. And despite that, we only make him part of our lives, not the entirety of our lives. Despite that, we only make him the means to what we want, not the end that we seek. He is the reason why for our existence. Until we bow the knee to him, we will not see his greatness and experience what it means to live for his glory. We see Christ is supreme. He is the Alpha and the Omega, but also finally, number six, we see he is also the sustainer. Verse 17 says, in him all things hold together. Wow. Wow. All things hold together in him. Every moment belongs to Christ. Every moment depends on Christ. Every moment is because of Christ. As Paul declared to the Athenians, He is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Christ wills every moment of existence. If he chose not to will our existence for a second, that would be our end. We would disintegrate. We would be unknown. We would disappear. Everything is held together. Everything is sustained by him. And yet, we have a small Jesus because he is the sustainer of all things. And yet, so many of us are wrecked with the self-centeredness of anxiety. We are so worried about how everything is going to happen, what's going to happen, things that we can't control. And so we are filled with anxiety We are filled with anxiety when we forget that the one who is holding all things together is our Savior. Now that he is the sustainer does not mean that 
that we have an easy life. It doesn't mean that we're going to be spared from sadness or pain or death. But when we recognize that he is a sustainer, we know that nothing that we face, we face in vain. And whatever we face will result in his glory. That is the confidence that we have as a sustainer, as him being our sustainer. How can we know? How can we know that we don't need to be anxious, that he is going to take care of everything, that we are going to be sustained by him to the end? How can we know? Turn with me to to Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, the scene of the crucifixion. We are told these words, and the verb is so important to grasp. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. How did the spirit of Jesus depart? Was it beaten out of him? Was it extracted from him by the cross? Was it overcome by the evil? No, Jesus gave up his spirit. He released, he yielded his spirit at the time of his choosing. Why? Because he is the sustainer of all things. He sustained the cross and he sustained himself upon it until all of our judgment, all of our sin, all of our separation was fully and finally extinguished. He sustained himself until he said the words, it is finished. This is mind-boggling to me. As the sustainer, he held the nails to the cross that held him there for us. But that is the spirit of the one who sustains all things. If he sustained our judgment, he will sustain us till he brings us to him. My friends, take your eyes off your fears. Take your eyes off of your anxieties. And look to him who upholds you. It's your Savior, Jesus Christ. So we see in this passage six titles that reveal Christ's supremacy over all creation. He is God revealed. He is preeminent. He is creator. He is sovereign. He is alpha and omega. He is the sustainer. My friends, the supremacy of Christ destroys all self-centeredness. Look to him and you will find the only one who is worthy and it is not us. Look to Christ. He is enough for your salvation, for your purpose, for your joy. Amen.